From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Teens under stress, from cell phones to gaming to social media like Instagram and Facebook. What's the impact on how the teenage brain develops? When it comes to social processing, it's like teaching a whole group of students and say, we're going to learn how to juggle. And for the first class, I give them razor-sharp steak knives. And they start juggling. A lot of people are going to get cut. Then, from record-breaking cold in Colorado to a historic vote in the U.S. House, we break down a big news week. Plus, two young brothers alone, the only survivors of a plane crash in the Rockies. Looking back at the wreckage decades later, how did they survive? It's crazy. It's like a sandwich sardine can. And the challenges they've had to overcome. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Many teens spend a lot of time on their screens. So what's happening in their brains as they do that? Is it hurting them? For CPR's special series, Teens Under Stress, today we take a closer look at the teenage brain. We'll start with CPR health reporter John Daly and a doctor who specializes in mental health. They met with a group of teens, and the teens had a lot of questions. We met in an ordinary classroom on the second floor of Alameda International Junior Senior High. It's a public school in a mostly Latino neighborhood in Lakewood. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, awesome. Five high school students shared what they want to know about teens and screens. This is Brooklyn. Do you know why kids get emotional over social media or the phone? This is Jovan. How does it really like affect the brain? This is Genesee, and I just want to know why are you? Why do you care so much about the brain with social media? Like, what's your purpose for doing all of this? The person in the hot seat? Yeah, I'm Joel Stoddard. I'm a child adolescent psychiatrist with children's. I'm in one millionth grade. The students tell Stoddard they use their phones for hours on end. Do you all have cell phones? How do you use them? Social media. Music. Texting. Mostly social media and music. To get a hold and touch with family members. This is Luis. What do you think triggers in the brain that makes the adolescent want to be on his phone always? Dr. Stoddard says teens' brains are excitable. They have sensitive reward centers, including a part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens. Social media lights those up. When you get a like, your reward centers are really active. Those reward centers develop much earlier, and there's a big difference between our reward centers going after what we want, and our control centers in adolescence. Those control centers develop later in a part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. It governs more complex behavior like setting and meeting goals or turning down desirable things like likes. And that's why it seems like adolescents, it seems, I'll say, adolescents are more vulnerable than other folks. Stoddard says the brain evolved in the natural environment, So there's no brain system for social media. So we respond to social media and what we like, just like any other thing in the real world. And social media offers unnaturally quick and consistent rewards than humans get from many other activities. The students nod their heads. Brooklyn says it makes sense. She's experienced that after posting on Instagram. You get all excited about it and then like... Once you're on Instagram, some people get sad because they see other people with a lot of likes and like them. Right, so getting likes feels good. Okay. This is Genesee. It's kind of like when you post a picture for that one person to see and then you like it and you like your adrenaline just gets sky high and you just like the best mood. 
Dr. Stoddard says teens' desire for social interaction might feed their stress about phones. They're especially tuned into their peers' reaction, so likes on Instagram feel to a teen like a sign they belong. But the opposite is true, too. They're extra sensitive to rejection and exclusion. To expect someone and to hope someone will like what you post and then not to get that reaction feels like a punishment. And again, there's no separate brain area for for punishments in the virtual world and punishments in the real world. And Stoddard tells the group it's not just posting. It's thinking about posting that can raise anxiety for some people. It's not just the likes. It's sort of the anticipating what other people are thinking about you on social media. So getting a couple nods there. Do y'all have stories about that? This is Brooklyn, and I know my friend is scared to post some things because she's scared about what other people will think and what other, what other people will think about her. Dr. Stoddard says that's especially true for those with social anxiety or fears about being judged in a social situation. People who are vulnerable to that kind of worry in the real world. We're very much more likely to have a strong gut reaction to worrying about what other people thought about their posts online. All that can put teens in a really fraught situation. Stoddard gives them an analogy showing an image. On the left is a match, on the right a gas can. A match by itself, is that harmful? It can be. Good answer. Stoddard tells them a match by itself doesn't cause any problems. Same with a gas can, all alone. But if you light a match and then put it by the gas can, something bad can happen, right? It's like that with young people and phones, he explains. For some teens, that interaction leads to trouble, maybe connecting with apps or people online in an unhealthy way. Dr. Stoddard says screen time can become all-encompassing, isolating. Jovan says that's what happened to him. He plays video games, especially Fortnite, late into the night. Like on the weekends, I would be on it like every day. And on the weekdays, I would be on it every day, like except for school. After school, I like would go home and then go straight to my room and then just play until it's like 10. It got so extreme, he even skipped meals to play video games. Genesee says every waking hour, except when she's at work, she's on social media, and it's not good. With me being on social media so much, like, literally my conversations with people is the social stuff I see on social media. Like, the memes, the jokes. It, like, becomes your life, literally. I ask them if their screen time worries them. Raise your hand if you're concerned about how much you're using your device. Every hand goes up. The research on the long-term impacts of phones is still evolving. High phone usage is linked to higher rates of mental health troubles. But researchers disagree on whether the phones are actually the cause. For his part, Dr. Stoddard tells the students phones and social media are likely here to stay, so the key is corralling them. Figuring out how to manage your emotions around social media and let and control, you control social media instead of letting it control you is a real trick in adolescence. At the end of the discussion, Brooklyn asks for some advice. What do you think that kids should change when using their cell phones? Like, should they be like more mindful or moderation? Everyone wants to be able to function online. It's a skill you have to learn. Engage appropriately socially online, not miss out, of course. Dr. Stoddard's bottom line for teens, to keep it healthy, keep it limited, and positive. I'm John Daly, CPR News.
For some more perspective on the teen brain, let's turn to Craig Nippenberg. He's a child and family therapist of 35 years in Denver and specializes in adolescent brain development. Hi, Craig. Good morning. We just heard in John Daly's story that teen brains can be more excitable. Their reward centers are more sensitive. Can you elaborate on how teen brains differ from adult brains or even the brains of a young child? Yes, and, and really it's three different brain areas that, that are impacted. First is what I call the president. And your president is when they talked about the prefrontal cortex. That's impulse control, your attention, time management, organization, all of those things. Now, that's powered by dopamine. And when you go to, through puberty, dopamine levels drop in about half. There are some evolutionary reasons for that. And basically, you have to remember the brain is the same it's always been. So Aristotle had a quote that uh, his teenagers today were as fickle in their desires as they were vehement in expressing them. So teenagers <laughs> are constantly looking for new stimulation because they're sort of bored. Then the, ple- the dopamine travels through the pleasure centers. So when they find something that's pleasurable, their dopamine levels go up and they just are looking for excitement. Now, when that happens, the dopamine also goes up to that president and it tells the president to focus on that. Really focus on that. So for our ancient ancestors, if they found blueberries or berries, which have a high caloric content, they would enjoy them. They would feel pleasure of the sweets, and their brain would say, find more. Well, that's a good use for that, that system. In terms of gaming and social media, those dopamine levels skyrocket, uh, with some up to 16 times the natural amount. And really, all they can do is focus on that thing that brings them great pleasure. At the same time, the secondary brain I refer to as the factory, which is your emotional factory. And at puberty, teens' brains, the emotional centers, become twice as active. So anybody who's parented a teenager knows that one minute they're happy and content, and the next minute they can be screaming at you and all upset and all worried and anxious because they have this tremendous emotional output. And when you put those two together, the factory and the president, you have to remember, I I use a basketball analogy, that the emotions are the basketball team with the ball. And they have four really big players and fast, and they're coming down the court. And they have, for their president, they have one small guy named Bob trying to stop them. (laughs) And they can't. And, And so teens are emotionally impulsive. They, they react to things. They, they get in the car and take off driving because they're upset, and they run into a tree. They, they're constantly doing things where it, it feels so big to them, and, and they act on it impulsively. They aren't able to stop that emotion, and a lot of times the consequences are disastrous. Now, I understand that there is a level of development that's happening in the teen brain that really doesn't happen at any other point in life. No, the closest to it would be preschoolers. So preschoolers have about the same brain configuration on that basketball analogy as teenagers do. There's a Hungarian proverb that says your child at four or five is how they'll be when they're 14 and 15. So it's very similar. And that's a very unique phase. Uh, the third year the brain really changes is what I call the mirror, which is your social processing abilities. And that's ability to recognize others' emotions, what your emotions are, to express empathy, hopefully, and to learn to influence others. So teenagers are learning how to be tomorrow's politicians and leaders. But when they're going through this, uh, it's not very pretty, especially in middle school. I like the analogy of uh, when it comes to social processing, it's like teaching a whole group of students and say, we're going to learn how to juggle. And for the first class, I give them razor-sharp steak knives, and they start juggling. A lot of people are going to get cut. 
Now, in terms of the gas and the, the match analogy from John's interview, I like to think of a chainsaw in that juggling. And that's what the social media really adds, a dynamic that can just be horrendously painful for kids. So even though teen brains have been developing the same way since ancient times, they're just these different stressors that they're it's facing It's the today. culture they're in. It's the same ancient brain, but it's a new culture. Uh, and it's not really designed for this. And I asked my 7th and 8th graders what they worry about. And the first three comments were about homework and academic stress. And that is one of the leading contributors to this increased rate uh, in depression and suicide. People are looking at academic stress. Uh, the next th two or three were about social popularity and social media. And so, so teenagers, and that's, we were all the same too. We were all obsessed with our friends and what they thought of us and our new hairstyles and clothes. But now it's supersized because it's through TikTok or some other app. Then they got into global warming, school shootings, suicide, and, and they're faced with lots of different things. And we, every, every generation has faced something with something. And I share with the kids, when I was in eighth grade, I can remember sitting in algebra class just praying the Vietnam War would end that I didn't want to get drafted and go into a jungle because I don't like snakes. But we all have had generational issues. Uh, now it, it really is quite a bit of academic stress. The homework has exploded compared to what it was. And the social media, the technology especially, really just supersizes it all. And, and it's all night long. So back in the day when I was a teenager, which is quite some time ago, if I had a problem with somebody at school, we, got, we took the bus home at 3 or mom picked us up. I didn't have to deal with that kid till 8 o'clock the next morning. I could be with my family. I could play football in the yard. We didn't have much homework and get a good night's sleep. And then I'd have to deal with it. We all have to. But you have to learn. Part of teen development is learning to compartmentalize your emotions. So as an adult, if something happens in your personal life, you still have to go to work. You still have to be able to put that aside and function at work. Then you have to learn, okay, I'll open up that one later. You have to compartmentalize things. And when the social media keeps it going 24-7, there's no times for kids to get a break from it. It makes they it a lot harder constant. to learn that skill. Yes. Let's go back to phones for a minute. Research shows correlation between phone use and anxiety and depression in teens, but not actual causation. Right. It's more nuanced than that. So how much stock should we put into this thinking that phones and screens are the problem? Well, I, first of all, there is some of that has to do with pre-existing conditions. So if a, if a child or an adolescent has pre-existing anxiety or depression, you're probably going to see higher levels of that with the social media component involved or more times gaming. There also is the isolation component. So the kids are wired and connected, but they're not in real life. So they're always on their phones and they're not really interacting in real time. And what concerns me more is the lack of social development, the ability to read other people face-to-face, -face, that takes three-dimensional. That's the only way you learn it, talking to people, feeling with people, being with them. That's the root of empathy. And if you're just doing things electronically, you don't get that impact of learning how to read others and, and how to be empathetic and reach out to others. In John Daly's feature, we also heard how video games can have a similar effect on the brain that phones do. What have you learned in your research about the impact of this on teens' brains? Yes, it's, it's, and it's the same with kids, too. It's just that teen brain becomes so much more vulnerable, uh, but you see that intense pleasure. I, I read a study uh, recently about uh, Fortnite, and a, a psychologist re looked at all the different uh, dopamine juices a, a player could get from that game. So they're constantly looking for the new package that's coming from the sky or getting a new skin, a new outfit to show off to their friends. 
And it just is pleasure, 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 hyper-focus, hyper-focus, total loss of time perception. So kids will get on there, teens will get on there, and maybe they start out thinking, I'm just going to do it for 20 minutes, and then I get, I get to do my homework. And all of a sudden, it's two hours later. Or when mom comes up and says, you've used your time, time to turn it off, the answer they usually get is, but I just started. And they really don't realize how much time passed because the time management center shut off. All it's there is hyper-focus. And so you see that they just can't manage time. And then when they stop playing, when dopamine levels drop suddenly, you see moodiness and agitation. And that can last about two hours. Are there certain steps that parents can take with kids when they're young that will help set them up for more social and emotional success yes, as teenagers? I, I, that, that's, I, I'm glad you asked it that way because it really has to do with starting young. Uh, so you want to start young with your kids, a really uh, focus on free play. I really like building independence with kids, not constantly rescuing them or micromanaging them through the phone. Uh, now I heard about college parents who are constantly monitoring where their kid is at college. I'm like, How's that kid going to learn to be independent? And when they're young, you start when they're young, push independence. Both my wife and I joined the Wait Till Eighth group, much to my daughter's chagrin, who's in eighth grade now, and wanted a cell phone, a smartphone in sixth grade. And we said, honey, we're not going to, we're going to wait till you finish eighth grade. And it has been a lifesaver for us and for her. She recognizes, she's glad she doesn't have one because she sees all the various bullying and stuff that happens on social media. I think another huge part is to make empathy a verb. That as a family, you're to teach your children how to be empathetic of others and to do something about it and, and get involved in volunteerism. The other thing is monitoring your own social media use. I, years ago, this is five years ago, I asked the kids what they liked about current society. And they said, well, we like the Internet and, and the phones. And I said, what do, you, what do you don't like? And number one was their parents' use of their cell phone. Hmm. Their parents are always on their cell phone when they pick them up from school or on the, the phone at dinner time. And you cannot be doing that. If you want to connect with your child after school and you pick them up, don't have your phone on. Turn it off. Spend time with your kid talking like the old days and at dinner time. No excuse to have phones going off or checking your phones. Collect the devices at night. There's no reason a teenager needs a cell phone to set their alarm, which they'll tell you, oh, I have to have it for my alarm. Well, you can, it's called an alarm clock. You don't need a phone for that. Uh, so you really got to watch nighttime habits, collect those things. Listen lots is something I talk to parents. As a parent, if you say to your kid, how was school today? You'll get the F word, fine. They'll just say fine, and they won't tell you anything else. But if you can just kind of poke around and get to know their friends, ask about their friends, and just stay quiet and listen, you'll, you'll learn from them. Uh, I also think as your kids get to be teenagers, you, first of all, you have to know your kid. And so if your kid has a history of impulse control problems, they need more structure. If they don't, you can lighten up with them. If they're the kind of kid who has empathy and they, they include others, you want to promote that. So you have to start to understand your own child and then really parent them towards what they need to be more empathetic, to have good impulse control, et cetera. And I do wonder also about that impulsiveness that you mentioned. When the teen brain is really not structured for impulse control, how do you help them manage impulsivity? Yeah, well, you, you structure them. So they have, you have to have structured environments for them and structured activities. The phone breaks through those barriers. Um, I, I believe it was Iceland recently. They were having a problem with alcohol use amongst their teenagers, and they started a program where they provided organized sports and organized music venues. 
And they found by having the kids together where there's some adult supervision, doing sports, listening to music, they saw this huge drop in the alcohol abuse. So it just needs to be structured things that teens can get involved with that are positive. And you, for some teams especially, you have to watch the downtime, the, the free time, and that they could get out a little bit out of control in those situations. Can you find out how your child is at impulse control? You can, and you'll see it in preschool. Now, you have to keep in mind that girls by four years old are about a year and a half ahead in brain development than boys. So when I'm teaching a kindergarten classroom, most of the girls are sitting crisscross applesauce. They, they didn't spill on them themselves at lunch or recess. And the boys are moving around, touching their buddies, horsing around. It really isn't there for boys yet. And that has to do with the genetics of the president, which is on the X chromosome. So males only have one blueprint for frontal lobe functioning or self-control, impulse control, and attention. And females have two blueprints and can do it quite effectively. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have boys on the higher end. There's plenty of boys who are on the higher end. It's just a statistical average. And I do want to unpack that difference a little bit about teen brains and gender. There's this phrase, boys will be boys, that is tossed around a lot to excuse bad behavior. But I do wonder how much of the male brain is wired differently than the female brain. It sounds like quite a bit. It is. And especially at puberty, you really see more differences. So at infancy, there's not a great deal. Again, at puberty, girls are about two years ahead of boys. And so your eighth grade girls right now, this time of year, they're ready for high school. Eighth grade boys are, are still just joking around. They're thinking about just having fun in the moment. So you'll see that disparity. You have those differences, but they can't be an excuse. You, you, you never can use genetics as an excuse for your behavior. But it is school in particular is harder on boys. School is very presidential intense. You, you sit still all day. You go from class to class. You have to be organized, manage your time. And those are harder for, for males. And, and so you do see higher dropout rates in high school of males. We now know that in colleges, there's more females than males. But you, as a parent, you can say, I know it's hard for you to sit still in class. I know it's hard for you to get focused on this. Right now, you'd rather be gaming or doing something with your buddies. But you have to have it done. And so we'll structure time, make it a little more fun for you so that you can get the work done and then go out and have fun with your buddies. And boys need more movement in the classroom. They, they tend to do better with excitable materials, and they get bored quick. Hmm, that's fascinating. Craig, thank you so much for having this conversation. Thank you very much. Craig Nippenberg is a child and family therapist in Denver. His new book on the adolescent brain is called Wired and Connected. This interview is part of the special CPR news series, Teens Under Stress. We want to know what questions you have about teens and their phones. Tell us at CPR.org teens. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 33 states have signed on to this grand experiment in public health called medical marijuana something pharmacies can't carry and doctors can't talk to their patients about. So it ends up looking a lot like any other retail business. But here's the rub. There's not a lot of money to be made on medical marijuana anymore. So where does that leave patients who are on the medical marijuana registry? Find out on the season finale of On Something wherever you get your podcasts. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. And I'm Ryan Warner. A lot of news blew in this week, and I'm not just talking about the record-breaking snowstorm. Of course, that historic vote in the U.S. House on impeachment proceedings and a sobering report on a deadly home explosion linked to oil and gas equipment. 
For some analysis, CPR News Editor Megan Verlee is here. Hi, Megan. Hey, Ryan. And Dana Caulfield, Senior Editor at the Colorado Sun. Howdy, Dana. Hi. Uh, listening to the House vote this week on impeachment proceedings, I mean, it felt like a tennis match between one player saying this is the fairest, most open process ever, and another saying it's a sham, back and forth, back and forth. Megan, what did we hear from Colorado's congressional delegation? Well, they were definitely on opposite sides of that net. You have the the four Republicans on one side lobbying over to the, or sorry, the four Democrats on one side lobbying over to the to the Republicans on the other, uh, with a lot of disagreement um, and very much taking the national party's stance. So on the Democratic side, uh, it was really a day to lay out their arguments for impeachment and to try and drive home the gravitas of what they're doing. They really made a case that this is a very big deal. Uh, and you heard a little bit of that from Representative Joe Neguse. The House's impeachment inquiry has exposed the truth and uncovered significant evidence that the president abused his power. To honor the oath to defend the Constitution that each of us took, we must move forward with this impeachment inquiry. For as Thomas Jefferson once said hundreds of years ago, a sacred respect for the constitutional law is the vital principle, the sustaining energy of a free government. Negus, who's from Boulder, by the way. Exactly. And, you know, no uh, no small stakes there, as he puts it. For Republicans, though, this still continues to be about process and a process that they have not been happy with all the way along and that a vote did not uh, improve things for them. Uh, Ken Buck, who represents the Eastern Plains, he's also the, the chair of the Colorado Republican Party, said or tweeted out, House Democrats have been conducting an impeachment inquiry without due process, fairness or transparency for over a month. No American should be subjected to this kind of unfairness. Today's vote is nothing more than a Halloween trick to try and give this sham some credibility. So on the Republican side, no movement towards being happier with process just because there was one vote. Of course, there are really two subjects here. There's the subject of process and there's the subject of what the allegations are at hand. Uh, something that we try to get clearer and clearer on with the delegation. Of course, if the House votes to impeach, it moves to the Senate for a trial. What's the latest from Colorado senators to Republican Cory Gardner? And Democrat Michael Bennett, who remains in the presidential race. Well, I don't think anybody will be surprised to hear that Bennett is vocally in favor of the impeachment inquiry and Gardner is opposed. Gardner is opposed, uh, which is fairly cut and dried. And yet he represents a purple State. Interesting political lines there. I said nobody is surprised, and yet maybe some might be because, yeah, Colorado is increasingly purple. You might think that a Republican senator here, considered to be the most endangered uh, Republican in next year's Senate elections, might have a more nuanced or be trying to stake out some kind of middle ground on impeachment the way Susan Collins has in Maine. Gardner, though, has been... Uh, while saying he wants to see what the the investigation turns up, while he has avoided answering the question of whether he believes the underlying accusation is an impeachable offense, he uh, is sticking with the president pretty strongly. And there there was a, an interesting Politico article uh, just this week pointing out that the president has been very active fundraising for the vulnerable Republicans who stay strongly in his camp. So Gardner is benefiting from that, uh, actually directly doing some joint fundraising with the president around uh, opposing the impeachment inquiry. Uh, But even beyond the dollars, there are a lot of Republican voters that Gardner is going to need to turn out for him if he wants to have any chance next year. All right, Dennis, sticking with Congress, a bill that actually carries Colorado's name, CORE, the Colorado Outdoor Recreation Economy Act, 
remind us what this is, why it is not a slam dunk. <laughs> it's definitely not a slam dunk, even though it did move out of the U.S. House of Representatives yesterday, yeah. largely on a, a party line vote. Um, what this does is protect around 400,000 acres of land in Colorado in the San Juans, up near Leadville, and on the Thompson Divide, which runs roughly from uh, Carbondale down to Paonia. And significantly, um, it prohibits um, oil and gas drilling on about 200,000 acres of the Thompson Divide. And this is a battle that's been being fought by people who live in that valley for almost probably a decade. Yeah, this is legislation that really has been in the works for many years. Uh, So it passes the House. And why are its uh, fates worse off in the Senate? I gather that's because of the Republican control. Yes, that's true. And uh, the first thing that popped up after the vote was taken yesterday was Cory Gardner saying, you know, and and it is mission critical that he and Michael Bennett get together and carry this through the Senate if it is to pass in our state um, to protect these lands in our state. And the first thing Cory Gardner said was, well, Tipton, our guy on the Western Slope, did not vote for it. And it looked earlier in the week that maybe Tipton was going to come over um, to the the support of the CORE Act, um, but it just fell apart. Yeah. As The Sun has been reporting, Congressman Scott Tipton has been working on his own public lands bill, uh, but says he's optimistic that parts of it may be incorporated into CORE. Uh, This week, also, Dana, a long-awaited report came out on that deadly 2017 home explosion in Firestone, Colorado. Federal investigators confirmed that improperly abandoned oil and gas infrastructure was to blame. Erin Martinez survived the blast but lost her husband and brother. Uh, She was really unimpressed with this NTSB report this week thought it had no new light to shed. So she's putting a lot of stock in Colorado's new oil and gas rules, which are being crafted now. Here's Aaron Martinez. You know, we allow um, the oil and gas industry to leave their trash in the ground. And then we just take their word for it that that trash in the ground was properly disposed of. And then we allow these developments to come in and build on top of that trash. Speaking to Colorado Matters earlier this week, so the state's new oil and gas law, which prioritizes health and safety, is known as Senate Bill 181. Uh, how successful has the the rulemaking, the kind of rollout been? Well, as you would expect, it's a slow, slow, slow process. Um, what has happened is that it, the the words that are included in that law um, instructing the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission to make new rules for regulation of the, one of the largest industries in our state is that communities are becoming more emboldened. So that's that's going on. And that's, that's significant in the context of the NTSB report that we waited for two plus years yeah. to come out because it put the responsibility um, of that explosion that killed Aaron Martinez's brother and her husband um, sort of at the feet of the city that allowed subdivisions to be built over and built close to oil and gas operations and um, said that the pipe was likely cut in 2015 when construction of that subdivision occurred. Um, So conveniently, this uh, report comes out just as we're heading into rulemaking around um, the regulation of those flow lines that sometimes are working, sometimes they're not. They're turned off and on according to market demands. I'll say that Erin Martinez did not mince words when she said that she'd like old flow lines that are not operating anymore to be taken out of the ground. Well, and and I think that there are uh, plenty of communities that would share that. 
Uh, we are looking back at the week with CPR's Megan Verley and from the Colorado Sun, Dana Caulfield. Uh, okay, we can't let you go after this week without talking about the weather. <laughs> I'll just say that I bounced. Was the story of the week? It was the story of the week. I bounced back from a crazy fall on ice Wednesday. Uh, Yikes. We had a skating rink of a parking lot here. I'm okay. Thank you for asking. Is there video? There's not video of this. But that's a disappointment. We we have pulled together a little quiz, okay? You're each going to get two questions. Correct answers get an elk bugling. A wrong answer and a skier wipes out. Okay, we're quite sure that he's okay. That was from a video. You can watch that video, Dana. Okay, Dana, Grand Junction set two records this week for low temperatures in October. Wednesday morning, and then it broke that Thursday, was the lowest. Four degrees, six degrees, or nine degrees. Six degrees. Six, that's correct. Good. Okay, Megan, what Colorado ski resort will open for the first time this season on Saturday, the earliest in its 80-year history? I believe that's Monarch Mountain. Winter Park. Yeah. Winter Park. Ouch. Dana, in December 1913, a blizzard dumped more than 45 inches of snow on Denver. Still a record. What sort of vehicle cleared streets and sidewalks of snow and carried it to Civic Center Park? In 1913. A horse-drawn wagon. Yes! I am that old. (laughs) (laughs) Megan, we looked at the U.S. cities that got the most snow uh, on average over the years. Who comes out on top between Hancock, Michigan, which is on Lake Superior, right? Some lake effect snow. And Crested Butte, Colorado. I've got to go for the Hancock, Michigan. I'm terrible at this. Yeah, and every time this like skier <laughs> gets it. Gets it. Thanks to both of you for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Thanks, Ryan. Ryan. Thanks having, for having me. Having fun and looking at the serious news as well. So you heard from Dana Caulfield, senior editor at the Colorado Sun, Megan Verley, editor right here at CPR News, and Avery back to you. Thanks, Ryan. The night before he took his family to Aspen to ski, a Houston banker named Bill Godfrey was so excited. He sang John Denver songs to his sons, Andy and Mark. The next day, their small plane flew into a snowstorm over the Colorado mountains and crashed. It was March 2nd, 1974. Mark was 11. Andy was 8. They were the only survivors. Their parents, their brother, and sister died along with the plane's pilot. Here's Andy Godfrey more than 40 years later. I remember hitting the snow. I remember sliding on the snow and then, you know, blacking out. Andy woke up to see Mark pinned in the debris, bloody but alive. They spent three days and two nights in the wreckage before searchers found them. After the boys got to the hospital, Andy spoke with a nurse. He doesn't remember the conversation, but the nurse later wrote him a letter. She was actually right there when I was taken off the helicopter, and she said the first things that came out of my mouth were, uh, I'm not that bad, uh, but my brother's right behind me, and he's much worse than me. And then she said, I went on to say, my mother uh, told me what to do. She said, don't stray too far from the plane. 
and serve the food and try to keep Mark warm. How else would an eight-year-old know what to do? Mark lost both legs. Today, he walks with prosthesis. The brothers made a documentary about the crash and its influence on their lives. The film, Three Days and Two Nights, is screening at the Denver Film Festival tomorrow. Mark Godfrey lives in Denver. He joins me in our studio. Andy Godfrey is with us from his hometown, Aspen. Welcome. Hi, Avery. Let's start with the two of you stranded in that plane. Andy, it crashed far off course. How did anyone find you? Well, there just happened to be a little boy skiing that day. Actually, several people at Sunlight Ski Area saw us circling and, um, you know, were sort of just paying attention. But this little boy, Danny Schaefer, actually had his eyes on us. He was a real plane enthusiast and uh, actually witnessed the crash. And he was standing right next to his older brother, Danny, uh, who unfortunately did not see it, so couldn't confirm it. Uh, they both skied down and spoke with their father, um, Dr. John Schaefer, um, and told him, Danny told him what he saw, and unfortunately, uh, Dr. Schaefer uh, questioned him and, and said, uh, you know, you probably didn't, you probably went over the horizon. You probably, you know, did, didn't crash. So that was the end of that. And after those three days and two nights, you were both rescued. But telling this story decades later, it's been a quest for both of you. Mark, you saved boxes full of things about the crash and your life before it. Newspaper articles, home movies, letters your parents wrote when they were dating. Beyond the stuff, what were you searching for in telling the story? Uh, you know, I think what, what's always stayed in my mind is this idea that... Um, I, I had this family environment and the family was not there anymore. And part of me wanted other people to know who my family was. So I think deep down, I wanted to share um, this loving family that uh, was a part of my life that's not a part of my life anymore. Mm, and you do that in the film through a lot of home videos and you share what your parents were like. You lost most of your family. Your sister Paula was a baby at the time and she stayed behind in Houston. So she wasn't on the flight. But the crash even put a strain on your relationship with each other, Mark and Andy. In this film, Mark, you said you feel like you let Andy down in some ways. How so? Well, I, I think that, um, you know, when you lose that family structure and you have to rebuild uh, a new family structure, if you will. Uh, we ended up moving in with our uh, cousins, the Shoemaker family, and they raised us. As Andy said in the film, it was uh, the perfect environment for us because it just put us right back into a family environment. But Andy and I still had a lot of stuff that we were carrying with us. Um, you know, there's a recent Bruce Springsteen quote about you know, carrying baggage around it. And it was almost too big. It was almost too overwhelming for us to uh, to talk about. And so I think that's why we set it aside. And we got a lot of advice from, you know, doctors and family members to, to get on with your life. Um, just move ahead and, and keep living your life. And, and so all of a sudden, years go by, decades go by, and I had my own thoughts and reflections about it, and Andy did too. And you're still kids as you're processing this thing that I imagine it's really isolating. It's not something anyone else is going through. And you're right. both experiencing it differently. Um, do you feel like the different ways that you experienced it, Mark, you were really badly injured. And Andy, um, you came out of it ostensibly without so much physical injury. Did your different experiences change the way that you had to process later? 
I think so. I mean, I was able to do sports and I kind of go go about my life in a in a very normal way. Um, I, I lost uh, you know some toes. Uh, so, so when I would take off my shoes and people would see my feet, that was the only real clue that they had, you know, that something horrific had happened to me. Uh, whereas Mark, you know, he, he had a cane and crutches, wheelchair. And so people are constantly saying, oh, what happened to you? You know, and it's not like Mark can go into a, a three-hour dissertation and, and tell the whole story. So he, he's had to, to adjust to just sort of dodging the issue. Uh, but we're not dodging it anymore. Mm-hmm. And... Andy, you are sorry, Mark, you mentioned that in the film you felt as an older brother, maybe Andy didn't get all the guidance that you could have given. Um, I, I just felt like I had a lot of responsibility mm-hmm. because I, I had more memories of our childhood than Andy did. And so sometimes I felt like I was kind of the keeper of all this family information and, and family mm-hmm. memories. And, and so I would try and share that uh, with Andy and Paula as we were growing up, whether it was our parents you know, anniversary or birthday or, you know, we'd, we'd go someplace and I would, when we were in Texas and I'd say, oh, we've been here before. Um, and I would remember it, but they wouldn't. And that is so much to carry as a kid. Andy, in that same conversation, you apologized to Mark. What for? Uh, for not showing the type of empathy, you know, that I have now as an adult. Back then, you know, I was just sort of taking my relationship with Mark for granted you know, I, I never told him how much I appreciated him, you know, storing these 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 memories of the family and, and, and keeping them alive. And, and now I view, you know, that with so much uh, appreciation and gratitude um, because it is this living legacy that, you know, we're trying to maintain. And what did it take to grow closer after years of putting this crash behind you, but where it really kind of came between you? Well, my, my article in the Aspen Times really sort of thrusts this whole issue to the forefront, as Mark, Mark will say. Um, I really wrote that article for myself, my, my own closure. But, you know, what I didn't realize is that it would provide closure to so many other people who knew the story but were reluctant to ask about it. Um, so Mark, you know, uh, sort of had to be prodded along at the beginning to, to do this. But... Uh, Thankfully, he, he trusted in his relationship with John Breen, our, our producer and director, uh, who was one of Mark's childhood friends growing up, that really allowed Mark the comfort to, to open up and start sharing uh, the story. And Andy, you wrote that article several years ago, and that actually helped prompt the documentary. After the crash, you both moved in with your aunt and uncle. Mark, that was a very difficult time for you. Let's listen. So I'm 12 years old. I had a fight with Andy. And I got in my wheelchair, and I came down here. I was mad. Because I hated so much who I had become. What was it like going to a new school, making new friends, and learning to cope with all that you had lost, even your legs? Uh, clearly a lot to handle. Um, I, I was dealing with a lot. I, I was... You know, I was seeing a therapist at that time, but, um, you know, it's a, it's a lot to process. And so I think I just internalized a lot of it. I built walls around myself. Um, um, as Andy mentioned, uh, people would ask me all the time, how am I doing? How am I doing? What happened to you? And it was just easier to tell people white lies. Whatever season it was, I would say I got injured in that sport. I was pretty active, um, 
in sports when I was younger. So it was a very, very um, dramatic and and um, sudden switch to 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 be disabled, and it took a lot of time to process all of that. Uh, I ended up after college, uh, spending a couple of years on the U.S. disabled ski team. And I think it was at that point where I, I let my guard down a little bit and I, I, I just became more comfortable with being disabled. I think I searched for uh, normalcy in my life and I searched for anonymity. I just wanted to be normal and blend in and go to college and get married and have a family and have a job and, and try and be as normal as I could. And we should say that you actually won the World Disabled Ski Championships in 1986. I understand um, that, Andy, earlier in the film, Mark shows you a picture of the plane's wreckage. Let's listen just for a moment to your reaction. It's crazy. It's like a sandwich sardine can. You both visited the crash site a couple of times. There's still debris from the plane there. Mark, what is that like for you? Um, I think it's funny, the emotions that, that flow through me and, and Andy, and we took Paula up there uh, as well. Um, it's a very serene mountain side meadow, but when, when I'm there, I hear very loud whining noises of a plane. So it's this juxtaposition between a mountain meadow and what I'm uh, what I'm experiencing. Maybe that's a version of PTSD. I've never investigated that, but that's just what I hear uh, in my head. It's also, you know, as Andy noted in the in the movie, very, very calming and peaceful. It's, you, you know, I think we could feel our, our family's presence there. Mm. Now, Andy, can you tell me why it was important to you to make this documentary? Um... Just to really tell the story, uh, again, kind of goes back to the closure, you know, for us, but for so many other people. But the, the farther along that we got, Avery, we realized that, you know, everyone could really relate to the story that's experienced trauma in their own life or know someone who's experienced trauma. So, you know, what, what this takeaway has become is one of the things we're most proud about is that we've turned this stereotype of men upside down where in the past men kept all their emotions inside and that was perceived as a sign of strength. Uh, with all the problems we have in the world, you can honestly say it's a sign of weakness. And by Mark and I opening up, sharing our feelings and emotions and being vulnerable and authentic, we really feel like that's the new sign of strength going forward for men. Mm. And Mark, what about for you? And, and I would just uh, echo Andy's comments, but then also share uh, you know, the tremendous vision and energy of the uh, uh, producer and director John Breen. As Andy noted, he was uh, one of my best friends growing up in uh, Houston, and he's watched Andy and I uh, kind of pick up the pieces and get on with our life, and, and it moved him. And um, John has a gigantic heart to to feel so moved and, and feel so strongly about this that he, he went out and, and made a movie. It, I'm, I'm humbled more and more each passing day. Uh, by his quarterbacking of, of this project. And you've showed this film several times around the country. What kind of reaction have you gotten? It's very humbling to, to hear um, people's uh, re- response afterwards. As Andy noted, um, you know, they come share with us some of their loss and tragedy. You know, everybody has issues they're dealing with in their loft, uh, life, uh, loss and tragedy. Ours is just a little bit different, maybe a little bit more extreme. I would say one of the things that I remember most as a 
um, a guy. And I think it's very interesting for men, as Andy noted, to share with us, you know, maybe, you know, men sometimes don't get along great with their with their brothers. And, and one guy came up to us after the film and said, uh, I've been estranged from my brother for you know, five or eight years and watching this film has given me a uh, motivation to reach out to him this weekend and see if we can uh, start knocking down some of those walls that have built up between us. And that was really, really humbling to hear. So I feel like we're, you know, we're, we're we've hit our message then. Mark and Andy, thank you both for joining us today. Thank you so much thank for your you, time. Thank you, Mark Godfrey from Denver, Andy Godfrey from Aspen. The brothers survived a plane crash that killed most of their family in 1974. It's documented in the film Three Days, Two Nights, which screens tomorrow, Monday, and Wednesday at the Denver Film Festival. When the Godfrey brothers were in the hospital, singer John Denver dropped in a couple of times. Here's Mark during one of those visits singing one of Denver's songs. Sunshine on the water Look so lovely, sunshine almost always makes me high. Thanks for joining us today on Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News. Sunshine on my shoulder makes me happy Sunshine in my eyes can make me cry 